welcome back to Butter With That. It's been a little bit since we've recorded, like, I guess like three-ish weeks now. Uh, I am in my new house, uh, Ghostwood Studios, as we're calling it. Um, but how is is everyone doing? What's been going on? Yeah, I'm good. I watched The Haunting of Bly Manor this weekend. Oh, yeah? How was it? I really liked it. It is very different than Hill House, but a good different. Um, This one took me a little bit longer to really get into, but then one episode happened and I was like, oh, this is really good and I'm totally in it. The very last episode, I was going back and forth on whether I liked it or not. And then the way that it ended made me weepy. So I guess I would say like, overall, I really enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, I saw um, I saw like the first two episodes of that and was not sold. But then my housemate watched all of it and was telling me about. They kind of like spoiled it, but um, knowing the direction it takes and uh, and the kind of like gravity that it brings to the story, it sounds like it's actually pretty cool. So I might check the rest of it out. Yeah, I would say episode five is one I went. Mm-hmm. Oh no, this is cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. The uh, the main guy with the mustache. I forget his name, but I've been following him on Twitter for a while. Um, Ru- Rui. Ru- oh, oh, the guy that plays um Owen, the cook. yeah Owen. Yeah, I don't know if he's the main guy, but um he's not okay. Well, he's appeared on my entire Twitter feed as the main guy. Uh, he's really cool. <laughs> he seems it. Um, yeah, it's really cool. I uh, honestly, the main actress in it, her name is um Victoria something. I gotta say, I'm not a fan of how she plays characters. Nell was different in Hill House, but this one, honestly, I just wanted to slap her in the face a little bit. It like really got on my nerves, but like towards the end, she she wasn't the main focal point and it got better. Mm. Just read the book and it's interesting just that Mike Planning had decided to take it in like an entirely different direction. Like the book is so different than, I haven't finished the show, but like even just like the whole family story, like none of that is actually like a part of um, Shirley Jackson's like story, which is really interesting. In Hill House? Yeah. Interesting. The main character is Nell, but like that's kind of one of the only big similarities really. Is that show kind of like American Horror Story where like every season is going to be like a different spooky house story? I think so. And um, three. Like, of, more talented than what's his face, though? Ryan, Ryan Murphy. Murphy, yeah. Yeah, three of the principal characters from Hill House are in Bly Manor. Although, no spoilies, I won't say who, but there are more people from Hill House in this whole season that they kept on lock, and it's a surprise. Cool. And I was so excited. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I've um, uh, started The Boys season two. Uh, I was a really big fan of season one. That was one of my favorite shows. I guess that was, yeah, last year. Uh, so I'm like four episodes in. This one is like different, I guess, like, because season one was like such a surprise, like how intense, gruesome, chal- like, and, you know, just intense of a show it was. Now this is like kind of the same. So the plot's really good, but there's still a few of those like really awesome shock moments. Um, but it's this season, they're doing a really good job, like diving into like, especially Homelander, who's like the evil Superman character. Uh, Anthony Starr, who they have to play him, I think he's a New Zealand actor. He is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and that, like, could snap your neck in one second and then also do other weird stuff in another second. So he's like, I don't know. He really ties the show together. And runs, I can't the finish ga- it. runs the gamut of either snapping your neck or doing weird stuff. <laughs> no spoilies. Right. 
Um, but yeah, the boy so far, so far, so good. Some interest, uh, interesting plot twist happened. So I'll definitely probably finish that in the next two days. I've spent, um, I spent some time recently going down the uh, John Travolta forgotten or unspoken films rabbit hole, which is kind of like the movies he's made in the past like five or six years. And yeah, there's a reason you haven't heard about these movies. Uh, it includes films such as uh, I Am Wrath, which uh, if you didn't like uh, Bruce Willis's uh, Death Wish remake, then you should certainly keep your hands off this movie. Um, there was The Poison Rose, which is a, a Southern Gothic noir movie set in the 1970s where he's got a Texas accent and is playing against uh, Morgan Freeman. And he knocks out an assassin with a football. Pretty great scene. Um, nice. Also, Speed Kills, which is basically if you took the movie Blow, uh, you know, the movie about like Johnny Depp about drug trafficking and just made it about the speedboats. <laughs> So it's been a bizarre little while watching uh, John Travolta's uh, career kind of take some interesting turns over the past uh, several years via these movies and also seeing the different hair pieces that he's had to wear. So it's been strange. I'm sure there are many. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Well, I it's October, so I think I'm up to 16 or 17, like, spooky movies. So, like, pretty much everything I've watched has been Halloween slash spooky related, which is, like, excellent. Um, Two, like, a week or two ago, um, I got a last-minute screener for Possessor, which is um, Brandon Cronenberg's new movie. Uh, So David Cronenberg's son is the director. He did a movie called Antiviral a couple years ago. Um, But Possessor was, like, excellent. It's so good. Um, He shares many of his father's, like, um, anxieties about like, you know, technology and capitalism and just like weird dystopian shit. So, um, Possessor was like really, really excellent. Um, plus lots of body horror. So always good. Um, but definitely one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Um, and then also, um, Criterion released a collection of 70s horror on their streaming service. Um, So Garrett and I have watched like maybe five of the movies that are in their 70s collection. Um, So there's some old Romero, um, because I think neither of us had seen any of like his movies, but the of the dead movies. Um, So we watched The Crazies. We watched um, a movie called Season of the Witch, which is about a pent up housewife who decides to become a witch. And it's like really excellent. Um, we also watched a movie called Daughters of Darkness, which is about like sexy lesbian vampires. Also amazing. Um, Don't Look Now, which is like a Donald Sutherland movie. There's like tons of good shit on there. Um, so it's been really fun to like do a deep dive into just like how weird 70s horror is specifically. Um, I, I know Texas Chainsaw's on there. There's like a lot of good like stuff, but most of like the big names we've already seen. So it's been fun seeing some of the other stuff too. Um, but yeah, that uh, I guess segues into our theme, which since it is October, our megasode is um, specifically like Halloween movies. So kind of however we wanted to to interpret that. Um, you know, we got some spooky, we just have some like good, like seasonal stuff. So, um, we all decided to just, you know, figure out what, what movies we wanted to watch together as a group. Um, and so, um, I'll go first with my pick. Um, so I decided it very, very hard to pick a Halloween movie, 
for me, but ultimately decided to go with the 2014 Adam Wingard movie, The Guest, uh, starring Dan Stevens. Um, this movie, I, I mean, I love this movie. Um, Adam Wingard, I think, is such an interesting director. Um, he did Your Next, which is another one of my favorite horror movies. Um, he did the Unfortunate Blair Witch Project movie that Dave hates. Um, the Blair Witch, he, not the Blair Witch Project. The Blair Witch, yeah. 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 Um, and, and he's also uh, doing the new uh, Godzilla versus Kong. Um, so he's like, kind of like, he's like already like, kind of like jettisoned his career and is doing some like big name stuff now. But, um, the guest is one of his like super low budget movies. Um, it's, I always forget how Halloweeny this movie actually is because it takes place like in like the Midwest or like the South or something. So like the setting doesn't feel at all Halloweeny, but like, there are Halloween direction, like de uh, decorations everywhere. There's like a Halloween dance. There's a Halloween party. But I like always forget until I'm watching it that this like is like truly a proper um, Halloween movie. Um, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, one of the movies Garrett and I first bonded over when we started dating, uh, mostly because we both really love Dan Stevens and he would probably fully be our uh, hall pass for each other, um, specifically because of his role in this movie. Damn, like, <laughs> I mean, have, you've seen the movie now, like, how could, how could you not? Um, so yeah, the guest star is Dan Stevens. So um, if there are any Downton Abbey fans, he was uh, cousin Matthew and he actually left the show to do this movie, which is super interesting. Um, but he plays David who uh, goes to visit um, this family um, who he says he is a friend of their son who had recently died in the army. Um, he wanted to come and like pay respects and like also promise that he would take care of the family uh, when their son died. Um, so he goes to the house and he, you know, meets the mom and dad. Um, and then there's a daughter and brother. Uh, Micah Monroe is the daughter and she's just like excellent. She was the star of It Follows. Um, so it's also cool that she branched off and is continuing to do like weird genre stuff. Um, Leland Orser plays Spencer, the dad, who I think is really excellent in this role. Um, but yeah, like he meets this family, he tries to take care of them, but uh, madness ensues as we will discuss um, going through the movie. Um, but before we talk more about it, um, who's like first time watching this? Was it anyone's? Yeah, it was my right. first time seeing it. Okay, cool. I thought I'd um, seen it before, but I was mistaking it for something else, I think. Oh, I see, okay. Um, so I guess like what were your first impressions of the guests? This was a in a great way, a really hard movie to nail down what kind of movie it is as you're watching it. Um, is this like a home invasion movie, body snatcher movie, like sci-fi, horror, slasher, like kind of what direction um, is it going in? And so it was really a lot of fun playing at home, trying to figure out what, um, you know, the script, the direction, you know, Dan Stevens, like what is his deal? Um, and at the end of the day, it kind of reminded me of like that movie Brightburn, which is like the evil Superman movie, but if it was for, if this was for Captain America, like a weird kind of like super soldier villain origin movie, like very much like super low budget version of that, but that's kind of um, 
in like a great way what it reminded me of. And I really like this movie was absolutely spectacular. And I texted you that night that it reminded me it follows. And I didn't even realize that the daughter was the lead mm-hmm. in it follows. So that explains a good amount of it too, because she's awesome. Yeah, for sure. I love her. She's also uh, in a movie called Greta, which <laughs> is a very strange movie. Um, I don't know if people like, have you seen it, Sam? Yeah. Okay, cool. I kind of love that movie. It's like totally bonkers, but in I think a really great way. It feels like a like a two thousands exploitation movie. It's like totally wild. It left me speechless. I'll say that. Yeah, but like Micah has like that awesome moment at the end. Like she's a total badass, and I really like love that. Um, but yeah, like they're you know definitely like some you know not like big actors in this movie overall um there's a couple like weird appearances just from like actors i recognize um throughout the film but yeah i know so crazy (laughs) um but dave what did what did you think of the film yeah i was pretty taken aback i mean i initially thought to myself while starting it that like this was an interesting choice for you for like on a tumble horror movie or like a spooky movie or halloween movie um because it does, and it, it, I guess via the trivia, this is sort of the idea, has the like the tone and the pacing of a psychological thriller, uh, which it sort of is. I mean, it's kind of like a military experiment, special ops thing meets like a family intruder vibe. Um, so I was initially suspicious, but like as as we get to the third act with like the set design and the lighting and everything, in the end, it really does kind of ring uh, horror in like a very surprising and satisfying way. So I was very taken aback by that. I'm sure we'll cover what we're talking about as, as far as that goes. But yeah, it was, uh, I was very surprised. I, um, I went into it kind of assuming like this is going to be a, one of those familiar, like, um, I don't know, like one of those movies, like the stepfather or whatever, you know, just like mm-hmm. some sibling parent kind of, or uh, surrogate parent kind of thing swooping in and like that whole vibe. But it definitely has some interesting turns. And I was, uh, I was pretty happy with it in the end. I love the stepfather actually I just showed Garrett that the first time like Mm -hmm. a couple months ago which was a blast but um yeah it's like I like I I mean Adam Wingard kind of quickly went into doing like adapted material and stuff after doing the guest um I think the Blair Witch was like his next project after this um but like this and your next are like really interesting takes on just like feeling like kind of 80s genre movies and then like taking like a weird twist to it um, so I'm excited to talk more kind of about like the tone and the genre feels of this movie. Um, Sam, rewatching it, how did you feel? Great. This movie's rad. Um, I remember sort of where it came out, um, or like how I heard about it from you, Tori. So, um, when you and Garrett like first started talking and first started dating, I remember you had um, gone on an episode of his podcast talking about fight scenes. And I remember just like talking up the Captain America elevator scene to you. And you were like, okay, but this one, and you showed me the part in the bar where, you know, he buys the cosmopolitan for the asshole dudes. And then he tosses the, um, the, what's it? The, uh, what drink is it he gets Fireball. oh man i forget what yeah oh okay so he he throws that in their faces and i and you showed me that on the staff room computer at work and i was like all right i need to see this movie so i think i rented it and then immediate i was still watching the movie and i like bought a dvd copy of it because it's so good it's so 
oh, good. But it's, like, very hard to reconcile Dan Stevens as Matthew and then as this character. I remember being like, what? And then seeing Beauty and the Beast, like, at some point throughout. The, I can't remember if I saw the guest or Beauty and the Beast first, but just being like, this is the same guy? Um, he, Like, he's so hot in this movie. It's so incredible. I, like, I can buy him as a Captain America gone the wrong way, 100%. It's so good. Yeah, I mean, like, if you've seen pictures of him in Downton Abbey, he's, like, very adorable. Like, I had a huge crush on him when I watched that show. But he's kind of, like, this, like, cute, like, pudgy dude, you know, like this British, like aristocrat kind of guy. Um, and then like when I, I was talking about this last night with Garrett and I was like, it's so weird. Cause I had such a crush on him in that. And then I saw the guest and it was like, Oh, it's like the dude that you already liked got super hot and jacked. And now you like really don't know what to do with him. And that's what like this movie was all of a sudden it was like, what the fuck happened to you? <laughs> That's that's kind of interesting, too, because in the trivia, I was reading something to the effect that, like, he was working on a movie where he lost a ton of weight after Downton Abbey and was, like, pretty emaciated looking, like, almost like machinist kind of vibe. Um, mm. And the directors weren't really sure that he'd be right for the part, but I guess he really committed to, like, you know, sculpting himself for the role. Yeah, I mean, he he looks fantastic. Um, yeah, <laughs> I could show. like just talk about how good how good he, he comes looks. out of the bathroom um, and the steam is behind him and he's in that towel. I was like, I'm gonna throw in the towel. I can't. I need to take a minute. <laughs> I know. Every single time I see that, that, and then when he takes like the hit of the blunt at the party, I'm like, oh damn. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like he's such an interesting actor too. Cause like Sam, you brought up Beauty and the Beast, which I remember you came over my house and we watched Beauty and the Beast together one morning. Um, but like he, he like keeps going back to weird genre stuff. Like this year he just did The Rental, which is Dave Franco's like directorial debut. Um, another like super budget, low horror movie, like, yeah, whatever. Those words all made sense together. Um, and you're open. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like, I, I really love that, like, commitment to continuing to do, like, really weird roles. Um, when I was talking to Garrett about this, we were talking a little bit about how, like, he kind of reminds us of, like, Brad Pitt a little bit. Like, he's got this, like, like, big movie star vibe, because he's, like, you know, just a really good-looking man, but, like, they continue to do really weird roles, and so I hope that's a thing, like, that continues in Steven's career as well, just because, like, He's really fun as David. Um, mm -hmm. I One thing I really appreciate every time I watch this movie is how quickly he can change his, like, face. Like, he'll all of a sudden, like, shut down at moments where it's like he literally is a robot and, like, just has, like, no facial expression or, like, looks like he's going to murder you. And then, at, like, like, in another second, he's like, oh, I'm just fucking with you, everything's fine, like, whatever, and it's, like, all, like, cool and jokey again, and I just, like, love when I actually pick up on an actor, like, being so good at their job that, like, it just through the face, there's so much going on. Um, yeah, it's very um, convincingly <laughs> chilling. Yes, absolutely. Um, him, and then the other person I really love is Brendan Meyer. He plays Luke, the younger brother. There's something about, like, his facial expressions throughout the movie that are so funny. Like, he's constantly looking at David like, what the fuck 
are you doing? Um, there's a scene where he picks him up from school and he like takes a moment to actually register that like this random dude he doesn't know that well has like just picked him up from school. And the face he gives him the whole time is just like, like, like what is actually happening here? This is very strange. Um, so I really love specifically like the scenes that they're actually in together. Um, but yeah, like I, I mean, this is such a fun movie. I definitely want to just dive into like what kind of, what scenes people really like in this film, what like aspects people really like. I, I really liked the um, haunted, like the school haunted house scene. I thought that that was so great, especially because like now you have like the government agent in there as well, getting mixed up in all of that. And, you know, something I really appreciate about this movie is that like it recognizes the tropes and then just when you think they're going to do something that like you're like I've seen this a thousand times they do it but then they go like left with it that I, I think like I don't know it's refreshing and fun but like my biggest question to you Tori and to um, you Connor and Dave is put yourself in the sister's shoes um, you have this guy who's coming in, um, was a friend of your brother's, is doing nothing but good things seemingly for your family. He's hot. You're kind of attracted to him. Do you make the call to the government to see like what he's about? And like, do you cause this ruckus? I, 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 like, I, I, I don't know if I would. So like, wh what do you think about that? Is that like believable? Is it like, do you buy it? If you're staying in my house, I got to know your backstory. I'm not falling for this. Um, especially, like, you know, uh, uh, framing it as uh, Micah Monroe's responsibility. You know, if I were in her shoes, I don't know. But as far as those parents go, when it gets to be, like, day five and they're just like, yeah, I will disarmingly get drunk in front of this stranger. I don't know. It's like, uh, you're, you're putting yourself in, uh, in not a good place here, as we find out. Yeah, I thought they were doing the thing where, like, the mom is just, like, so grief-stricken that she's, like, any connection to her son, like, doesn't matter what it is, and the dad would be, like, hostile the entire time. But no, after that one night, the sad sack just, like, drinks, like, four beers and just spills his guts to David, and then he just He's always him. drinking. Always. I mean, it's like, it's like four people who are already not handling their trauma well, and then they just get to project on this stranger that comes into their house. And you're like, oh man, this is like getting even like worse. Like no one is actually taking care of themselves in this movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I wish I could say that I would like get suspicious right away, but like, I mean, it's Dan Stevens and he's so good looking. There's probably no way, but like, I, I do like, I don't know. I I like this like uh inherent like I don't know, like distrust that she has and then she kind of starts to forget about it as he's doing nice things for her, but then like, you know, see something suspicious again and like kind of comes right back to like, "Oh, I don't know. Like maybe there is something fucked up about this guy." And just kind of being like, "Oh, my intuition was right in the first place. Like something's weird." Um but yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting duality too. <laughs> This episode is haunted, by the way, as you can hear. There's some weird yeah. feedback things happening, <laughs> which is appropriate. Um, yeah, uh, it's an interesting duality, too, because, like, you get the sense eventually that the the brother, I forget the actor's name offhand, but he knew what was going on kind of the whole time, um, mm. but was, like, kind of cool with it because, like, David was sort of, like, seeing, seeing him through, like, these these troubles and, and trials that he was having at school and everything. He kind of earns his trust. Um as opposed to uh, Mika Monroe's character, who just sort of like a distrust emerges eventually, 
and then it becomes a motivating force. So I think it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting that she's the one that catches on and is vocal about it, even though the brother already knew, but is becoming accepting of him because he's being lured in by this person, sort of like helping them. So yeah, it's got some pretty cool like layers as far as how the family is divided against itself and his interest. Well, and he does a lot of good for the family. Like, that's the thing. Like, I mean, you know. Don't Kills condone, a lot of people to do it. Don't, but <laughs> Don't condone killing people to get ahead. But at least in terms of, like, the family. Well, like, teach, you know, I feel like he does give Luke, the brother, like, a huge, like, self-confidence boost. Should he be handing him a knife? No. Should he be teaching um, him to fight everybody? No. But, no, yeah. but in terms of, like, the idea of, like, if somebody's really being just horrible to you. Just like the stand up, like Luke is, I think, like, I don't care if you really kill people. Like, my dad's got a cool job. I beat up a kid. You got me out of being like expelled or suspended. There's that awesome scene where they've just finished carving pumpkins and he like takes out that crazy knife and he's like cutting up the jack o' lantern. But then he starts giving Luke advice and he's like basically saying, like, yeah, like, don't ever let bullies like get the best of you. And he says something along the lines of like, they punch you in the face. Then you go and you burn their house down when their family's sleeping, and you're just like, "What the fuck?" That escalated so quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. What? Uh, what are some other moments that people really enjoy? Uh, I mean, the haunted house at the end, or like the, the spooky maze, like the Halloween dance, was so great. Uh, is there no emergency exit or side path to that haunted house? Does everybody have to enter an exit via the, ha- the uh, maze? <laughs> I also couldn't help feeling the whole time is like, what exactly is the budget for this high school haunted house maze? Uh-huh. This is like professional grade shit. I know, <laughs> this is all I they love- have. <laughs> I mean, I love like, it doesn't feel like Halloween for so much of the movie, but the only, the few times it really feels like Halloween, but also like... um like 80s like pup tarty looking is like the party and then the scene at the end like when it's Mm -hmm. like oh cool we get the crazy lights we get I mean the whole movie has really great needle drops but like that last scene has like like three back-to-back songs that are all fucking awesome like as they're fighting him the soundtrack's amazing that we get Sisters of Mercy and that one Annie song they're they're all great I know uh I yeah the score for the movie is really good but like I listen to the soundtrack like all the time there's a band called survive that's on there that's like a vaporwave band they're so good um and like kind of that's like kind of Wingard's thing is these like awesome playlists like he also did the death note movie which I didn't really love but that whole soundtrack is like amazing um and that's like because I love like 80s movies and like John Carpenter and stuff like the scoring feels like such a big part of like horror movie experiences for me and so this movie having like all of these great like soundtrack like numbers on it is like perfect like primo (laughs) Um, I I also do want to make one note of the um of the uh the set design which is that uh the KPG office that set is the same as the set used as the boardroom in Comedy Central's Corporate, which is one of my favorite shows that just ended. Uh, it has a triangle logo just like the show. And Lance Reddick, who is fantastic in this movie, as he yeah. always is, is in like the exact same chair on the set. So I was, I was having a great time freaking out about that, just yelling in my living room. Uh, he's but so Lance good Reddick, in this movie. Yeah, I was gonna say he's. I mean, he's all. I love Lance Reddick, but he he's really great as like this unexpected force in like the mid second act. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the movie totally know, one... changes to be like a like military thriller, like Jason Bourne. It, de- it yeah, it goes through like it's like a family drama, like and it, like family intruder kind of vibe into like a military th- like psychological thriller kind of thing, and then into just a full blown horror movie, which is really a really cool trajectory because it always escalates in a way. Yeah, it's like what the fuck is actually happening as soon as it like gets out of the small town and like all of a sudden you're in like a military base and they're like oh they're talking about this guy and then everyone's like trying to figure out where he is you're like like i have no idea what the fuck is happening like i'm still along for the ride but damn well and he's not david's not like using this family also because it seems like there's like genuine like i believe him when he said he knew caleb the brother that died and like it seems like he went there to try to like I don't know, resolves some inner programming that's in his brain or to try to like honestly help people, but he just can't help people. Like I'm just like, I still, what I liked is that you couldn't quite figure out exactly like what David was doing, I don't think. Like it seemed genuine when he was like, I knew Caleb, like that didn't seem like a lie. I agree with that, but I feel like he was definitely like, it's his, it's his programming. He's like some weird Machiavellian, like Manchurian candidate thing where it's like always about how to best have the advantage. So I think, that all those warm moments are probably more a reflection of his programming than a subversion of it, mm. which is kind of, I think, strengthened and proven by the end of the movie. But I don't know. It's tough to say, which is a cool yeah. middle ground. We were talking about that because Garrett's big theory with the movie is that David is actually Caleb, um, which it's like really weird to watch the movie and try to figure out if that's possible. And so whenever we're watching it, Garrett keeps being like, and then this scene makes me think it's Caleb and this scene. And so then like one thing we kept talking about watching it this time was like, well, why is he doing all this extra stuff for the family? Why is this necessary? And it's like, is does he genuinely care about the family? It Does he just want to be a nice dude? Or like, is it this like embedded thing in him like where he feels like this is something he needs to do in order to survive well yeah i mean it feels like it's kind of proven by the movie's explanation because the reason that he's killing all these people is because they've come too close to compromising his identity and understanding that he is a sort of programmed machine that escaped in a way um so and that's when he's motivated to start killing off the family so it feels like yeah i don't know i think all the kindnesses are a reflection of him either trying to, you know, seep into obscurity via this this family and, like, evade his captors, or it, it's ultimately just kind of a long-game strategy kind of mm-hmm. play for him in earning their trust. I don't know. But what did he gain by yeah. killing the bosses, the, the dad's boss, or by framing the, like, stoner boyfriend? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, hmm. I mean, it's it's interesting to to try to think of of some of that stuff. But one thing I do like is that rewatching it too, I've just noticed moments where it's obvious he's prepared for like, however certain scenarios are going to go. Like when Micah Monroe confronts him in the kitchen in front of the family and is like, this guy is dead. We don't actually know who this like person is that's in our house. Like the first thing he does is he's like washing dishes. He picks up a giant knife and he's just casually holding in his hand the whole time and kind of waiting to see if the rest of the family buys it or not. And if they don't, he's about to murder that whole fucking family in the kitchen, which is hilarious. True. Um, yeah, I mean, I love this movie. There are so many good moments in it. I love the bar fight scene. I think that's so funny. Um, 
one of my favorite scenes over time has become uh, when he goes to the principal's office with the mom uh, when Caleb gets in trouble for fighting and he's trying to convince the principal that like they shouldn't expel Caleb uh, because this is a hate crime. Like this is a gay student that's being bullied and he's finally defended himself. And the whole scene is just so good. And it ends with the principal being like, I'm, who are you? And he goes, I'm a friend of the family. <laughs> and he just says it so sweet with his like slight Southern twang. And it really makes like, I don't know, his whole character so perfect for me. I do think it's something we um, maybe discussed before that as far as like um, British actors doing American parts mm. where they'll kind of like sometimes like slip in and out of accents, which can be a little bit awkward in film. I think that happens here a little, but I think it's really fitting because we don't we don't really know who this guy is most of the mm. time. And he's only revealing certain parts of himself to a certain extent. So it rolls out in a way that's very convincing, which is really cool. Yeah, I love that too. And just like, he's very like slow with how he talks sometimes. Like he's choosing his words very carefully. And I was thinking about that too. I was like, is it because this is a British actor and he's trying really hard to like make sure he's like saying the things the right way and think about every line? Or is it because this guy's kind of like a super soldier robot dude? <laughs> Some are pleasantly between the two. They both work. Yeah. Um, also, Dave, the conference room scene you mentioned, um, the I forget what the corporation is that they are working for. I think it's um, KPG. Yeah. K yeah. Um, that's the same corporation that the father works for in your next. Um, there's also like several little like, you know, Easter eggs in the backgrounds. Uh, during the party, there are people wearing your next masks. Um, it also says you're next on one of the walls in the haunted house at the end. Um, and then if anyone here has seen Halloween three season of the witch, uh, there's also a really great moment where it's just like a freeze frame of him. And it's the three main masks from that movie hanging on the wall. So, um, tons of fun, little like horror Halloween aspects to this movie that like really just do it all for me. Um, any other thoughts before we do our next movie? The scene where he sits on the bed with um, the sister when she's basically confronted him in the kitchen and he kind of wins that battle. It's just like this weird teetering of like, I'm going to snap your neck or do something weird, like <laughs> kind of vibe going on. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, he's like, is this my mix you made me? Oh, that's so amazing. I love that. One line I always think about is like when uh, shit has gone down, like they are shooting up the house and mrs peterson is in the kitchen and he like slides over and he's just like i'm so sorry mrs peterson as like he's about to stab her it's so good and the way he slides out from under the bed during that uh raid sequence it's kind of like yes. Whoop, which is pretty great it's wild it turns into like full-on just like slasher at the end with him like hiding under the bed and stuff I do have a question about that. How do we feel about the ending? Is he is he that? I mean, obviously, we're talking about it at length at this point, so spoilers or whatever. But um, do we think that that fireman is him or not? Definitely. Yeah. I like the idea that he's. I like the idea that he's now decided the only way to get out of this situation is to fake his death again and become another person. 
Um, but also giving Caleb a win by letting him kill him because he's just like, you did the right thing. Like, so Caleb like gets to beat the bully at the end too. Like that really works for me. It feels like a setup, but I also wonder how he survived getting stabbed right in the heart. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Not sure. Um, I know that like in the past there have been talks of like sequels and stuff, but I don't think that would actually happen. Like this movie didn't do super well when it came out. It kind of flopped, um, which is I don't think he'd be invited back into the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's a house left. <laughs> I mean, the parents are dead, so no. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, I also loved how the font, title font and credits were, it seemed like the exorcist font color and text. They, um, yeah, they definitely wanted to give this movie one thing that Garrett and I talked about. There's a logo at the beginning, too, that they made up for the movie specifically that's supposed to look like the Canon logo. Yes, because I saw that. I saw the name of that production company and I was like, wait, this can't be real. Yeah. Um, So it's definitely trying to evoke a very particular time with these, like, 70s, 80s movies and, like, the title cards and everything, so... Yeah, like, I, I agree. Like, it definitely has that feel of, like, Exorcist or some other movies that do that, too. Well, I think Sam is next. I am next. So my choice for the Halloween spooky movie month megasode is Practical Magic. Um, nothing says Halloween and fall more than New England and witches, to me. So um, Practical Magic is also a movie that I have loved forever. So it feels really fitting. So Practical Magic came out in 1998. It's based on a novel of the same name written by Alice Hoffman, directed by Griffin Dunn. Um, Dunn is most well known for being an actor. He starred in American Werewolf in London, but he also directed 2005's Fierce People, which is a very interesting and different movie starring, well, sort of starring Chris Evans. Um, This movie has a knockout cast. It's Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman, Aiden Quinn, Goran Viznich, um, Stalker Channing, Diane Weist, Evan Rachel Wood, Chloe Webb, just to name a few. There's more that I didn't even mention. Um, This movie had a budget of $75 million and made about 68 in the box office. So it was considered a flop and it has been critically panned and continues to be critically panned. But uh, Wikipedia officially dubbed it as a cult classic so. did you read did you read the wikipedia I entry i did <laughs> it says uh yeah was it cults the, the subheading is cult status and then if you open it it just says this movie is considered a cult classic end of segment that's it <laughs> <laughs> yep. that made me laugh out loud me too. Um, perfect i i wonder like because, you know, there's, like, a way that you can click on, like, cult classics. I want to see if, they, that like, any other movie just has that there, too. Um, bizarre, but thank you, Wikipedia, for that laugh. Um, in 2004, Warner Brothers and CBS produced Sudbury, a television pilot based on the film, and it was sadly not picked up. Um, it was named such for the town in Massachusetts where the novel and film take place. Um, So speaking of the film, what is it about? So um, Practical Magic begins centuries ago with the attempted hanging of Maria Owens, a woman accused of witchcraft by the town folk. Turns out, though, they were right. Um, We see Maria use her magic to survive her own execution. This act of basically rebellion essentially um, finds the town folk terrified and they exile Maria to her own island, eventually known as Maria's Island. Um, 
very clever. Mm. Um, they're pregnant and alone. Maria's heart breaks as she waits for the father of her unborn child to come to her rescue, but he doesn't. Um, through the heartbreak, Marie casts a spell of protection so that she would, quote, never again feel the ag agony of love, <laughs> which evolved into a curse on any man who fell in love with an Owens woman. So uh, fast forward about 300 years after that, uh, we follow the Owens sisters, Sally, played by Sandra Bullock, and Jillian, Nicole Kidman, through their own journey of love, heartbreak, death, acceptance, and magic. Um, I think that the biggest plot point is definitely this curse, um, both when we see it and when we don't, and how that shapes Sally and Jillian. So I picked this movie because of nostalgia. I said I loved it. Um, this was a movie that I watched as a little kid, but like maybe once or twice. And it was something that I had like a memory of in the back of my brain of Sally's Botanical Shop, just being like, what was that movie? And then my friend reintroduced, reintroduced it to me and I was like, oh my God, that's the movie. And so since then it's been like a white whale that I've conquered and I love just so, so much. Um, so... I know already that no one else here saw this movie before um, I brought it to the group. So as all of your first time watching it, what'd you think of the movie? Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock have really great chemistry in this movie. Um, Dave, wow. <laughs> Go on. I, I really enjoyed seeing the two of them getting up uh, to their shenanigans. Um, but I don't, I don't know. This movie did not quite like hook me in. I wasn't sure if it was like its premise. I think uh, we can definitely, I think we're gonna talk about maybe like the tone later. Like this movie also kind of feels like it's a few different movies um, kind of rolled into one. Um, so I think I enjoyed like the people who were in it um, and some of like the spooky ghost stuff, but I'm not sure if this was like necessarily like my kind of movie. Well, I mean like, thank you for that Connor, but like, let's be real. This is a movie for women. Mm -hmm. so like I'm not surprised to hear that but like I think that you're totally right in saying that it like is a thousand different movies in one definitely yeah I feel like I I I liked the movie um but the first half of it I was like I don't even know if I know what the tone of this movie is like there's so much different stuff happening there's so much like like really like sad drama stuff going on but then it's like also like kind of quirky and funny and then there's like yeah kind of like magical like creepy stuff going on too and so like I had a hard time like actually like pinning down like what I was supposed to like think this tone was um and I don't know if I still if I like totally figured it out um but like with movies like this I feel like um you know like I just watched like Halloween Town 1 and 2 the other day because they're both on Disney Plus. Oh god, there's um, some I know someone who just watched like Hocus Pocus for the first time and like really fucking hated it. Like, so I feel like there's something with these movies where like there's like a nostalgia factor and I don't know if I would like them as much watching them like when I'm older. So like when I do watch stuff like this, I really try to just like sit in and like like get that nostalgia feel back and I think like watching Halloween Town yesterday helped with that because I'm like okay these aren't like great but I like love them and I always will love them because that's just like how it is and like yeah like there's a lot about this movie there's like the New England vibes that I love there's like the witchy vibes um I, I actually, like, start in the middle started to, like, kind of, like, fall off a little bit, but then ultimately liked some of the stuff that happened in the end, so that helped, like, hook me back in, too. 
Um, so I like, I had a very enjoyable time watching this movie. I like, don't think it's the best and there's some stuff I'm confused on, which I'm excited to talk about, but definitely was like a fun, like just put on the, like in the afternoon and like watch kind of film, you know? Oh yeah. 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 This movie isn't good, but I love it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I have to apologize, Sam. I didn't like this movie. That's okay. I, um, honestly, Dave, I didn't think you would. <laughs> it's, you know, it, I love Diane Wiest. She was a treat, as always. Um, she plays her part extremely well. Um, I think the other aunt, I, oh, boy. I don't oh, Stalker Channing. I love Stalker Channing. her. Yeah. She does, they do a good job. I was really, in, I was really interested in their characters. Um, but, yeah, I'd have to agree with the, the general sentiment that the tone is a little bit all over the place. Um, I also feel like it introduces like so many plot lines that that it does see through to completion with each one, but it feels like they're so intermeshed that it's difficult to keep track of what I'm supposed to be paying attention to or feeling. Um, I would also have to say, Connor, I disagree as far as Bullock and uh, Kidman go, because I really like Sandra Bullock, but I think she more often than not plays type, which she do- I think she does really well here and can fit into those types very well. But when paired with Nicole Kidman, who is more of a character actor and cast for her range, except for maybe like Batman Forever, which, you know, whatever. Um, I, I feel like it almost feels to me like I, I recognize that they're, they're sisters who are different people and have had very different experiences and very different viewpoints and perspectives, especially concerned magic based on those experiences. But it also does feel to me as though those two actors are acting in different movies at the same time. Yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes Jillian Nicole Kidman kind of really gets on my nerves. Um, I think that, like, so, so something that doesn't really bother me about this movie because I think that by the end we get resolution. But I think that this movie creates like these plays into the stereotypes that women can be. It's either you're the really like prude, stuck up. Um, like very type A person or you're the, um, you know, you're the promiscuous woman who no one really expects much of. And like, that's disappointing. But I think that like, what the movie does is it like sets it up. And then at the very end shows that like, all of these people, because I would say that like, even the stereotypes of the the townswomen come into play a lot too. um, Mm -hmm. That people can be more than just those stereotypes and that there's always like, a full person, even if they do, um, like do feed into that particular stereotype. But uh, sometimes it's just hard to watch Jillian. It, it just is. I think that's that's sort of like a push and pull that like could have been made more palatable if you had more uh, cohesive, a more cohesive pair headlining the movie. Because I think they're two, they're two styles so so hard or so accentuate that those. Uh, that duality of that stereotype so heavily that it almost feels like they don't belong in the same movie, let alone being sisters. I, I, I don't know. It's just, so, I lose something in that translation, I think because of how disparate the two styles of acting are when they're kind of the leads of the movie. Hmm. That's so interesting to me because like I've never once thought that. And I wonder if it's like really coming into the movie as like 
an adult, like a total full adult and like actually like knowing what makes a movie good and being able to understand like different styles of acting. Whereas like when you're a bit younger, like when I first saw it, like this movie came out when I was seven years old. So I probably saw it around that time. You don't really pick up on stuff like that. Sure. So it's, it's not really something you pay attention to. So it's interesting because like, you know, sometimes you just, like, I never even think about that. And the only reason why, like, I know people complain about the tone and, like, you guys have mentioned the tone is because I've read reviews. Like, I, I never really had that problem. And, like, it's hard for me to hear, <laughs> a little bit hard to hear you guys kind of, like, um, down this movie so much. But, like, it totally, it totally is right, though, because, you know, there are a lot of questions that aren't answered. There are a lot of things that end too quickly and easily. Um and I wonder, like, do things always have to end complicated but well done? Or can things just be easy like this? I, like, I don't know. And I don't know if it's, like, worth it being so easy. You know? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I, oh, go ahead. I, I, I was invested in, like, the ants and the family and, like, this curse. And I kind of wish the movie focused on that element. Even maybe go comedic to, like, an odd couple where Nicole Kidman comes back being this totally changed person. Um, and so, like, that, I think, was the movie that was the most successful. Like, they live in this weird island. They have this big house. There's the grandmas take the kids to, like, a solstice festival where naked dancing's optional. Um, like, I really enjoyed a lot of those whimsical um, elements. And so I wish, you know, I, I kind of wish the movie focused a little more on, like, that family dynamic because I really felt like there was a lot to kind of dive in there about the curse, about who these ants are and, like, how they want to raise their kids. And I love how they're sort of like, let them figure out their own problems. We're going to go to the Bahamas or wherever they go. Yeah, um, I mean, the problem there is, like, you got – they're following a book. Right. There now is a prequel to um, Practical Magic that does go into the ant stuff, that does do all of that. But if you're working from – a certain text and you are trying to make that text come to screen, you know, you got to work with like what you have. I mean, they, obviously they do take some certain liberties, but like, I wish they would make like a prequel, you know, to, to, to see that stuff. And based on that book, that would be so awesome. Cause I agree with you, Connor, 100%. Sam, also like a week or two ago, Alice Hoffman just came out with another book. That's about, I think the, like the original witch, right? Maria. Yeah. Maria. Um, which like is interesting because like you know I I like this idea of like having like the trilogy that's like these like different generations of women and all the stuff they dealt with I think like Sam you were saying like the difference of watching it like for as a kid like compared to an adult I think for me I think one of them one of the reasons why like tonally it feels weird is because like I know that like if I was watching this when it first came out I would be super invested in like the love aspect of this and the romantic relationships and wanting to be like one of the sisters or like watching it this time. I was like wholeheartedly like, man, these aunts are cool as fuck. Like, how do I get to hang out with them more and like, hang, like do their story? Cause I like want to see all of that stuff. But like, yeah, like now that I'm like, older and stuff like the romantic relationship like I don't care about that much and like one thing I think with the tone was that when the movie starts and the whole and the premise is like if you're a man and you fall in love with one of these women you're gonna die and so then I was confused about like so when Nicole Kidman goes off with this guy and then she has she's writing letters about all these different dudes she meets 
that she's dating now, I'm like, is she just like killing dudes all over the place? Like, is she like mowing down guys all over the world? Because like, I was like, is this supposed to be like fun? They kind of accidentally murder dudes or like, oh, we're sad that they're murdering dudes. No, I think I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I actually made a note about that. Um, so when I wrote, I said um, the biggest plot point is the curse when we see it and when we don't. So mm-hmm. what we see is that neither of the sisters, if left to their own devices, were ever, were ever able to find love other than what was created for them or each other. Mm-hmm. So no, we can say that Jillian never found uh, a man that loved her right? Because like, we don't hear about any of that. So that really never happened. And not even with Jimmy, um, Jimmy Angelov, Angelov. Um, oh, yeah. That's not love, right? Like, oh, especially not. That's love. really, yeah, abusive yeah. and terrible, right. which I think is an interesting yeah. subtext too, in the sense that it's like, mm. yeah, it needs to be like a mutually like loving and uh, I feel like it has to be one of those things where it's not like one night stands or, or killing dudes because, you know, um, uh, Nicole Kidman's out there doing whatever. I think it's it's more just it has to be like it, it, it is a curse in the sense that it is it it only impacts true love between two people. And it's like after they're married, it also seems like the time when it happens, it, which is also interesting. I'm like, oh, they were together for like years before they died, which was right. like it was just interesting. Yeah, I was like, this is like very odd that like all these guys like like they're able to have like a family and have several kids and all this stuff before they actually croak. Um, so like, yeah, like the I guess I got like really hung up on just the like, how does this curse actually work and and like do we think it's like a fun kind of thing? Cause like um, there's a movie called the love witch that I really love. And it's like something where she just wants to fall in love with a guy. And she just kind of accidentally like kills dudes because she's trying to get them to fall in love with her. Um, and so I think like, I was thinking of that too, where I'm like, man, so like, how do we feel about all these things going on? And like, Oh, okay. So this is sad. Like this is really terrible. And they're like traumatized by this. But also, like, the aunt's like, oh, you guys should still fall in love and, like, have kids and do shit. I'm just like, what? Why? Yeah, and I (laughs) think... This episode is so severely haunted. I haven't heard any of it. (laughs) Um... But, like, Tori, I love that you're bringing this up because, like, this is probably one of my favorite things to really think about is the extent of this curse. Mm. Because, like, the reason why Sally and her husband Michael get together is because the ants put a spell Mm. on both of them to push them together. And so we don't know any of the story behind um, any of the relationships that have come before. We only know what we see with Sally and with um, Jillian. And so presumably we can think that the love became mutual and real and then he died Mm. but like because the spell was put on them and that's what caused that love I mean there's even a point where um Sally says my own flesh and blood when she learns that like this relationship was born from a love Mm. spell Mm -hmm. so like even she's thinking like was this all a lie and then did it become real and that's what killed him you know and so like i think that's a lot of fun to really think about um because it is so open to interpretation and you do have to read a lot more into some things so like i love that you brought that up because it's fun yeah and i'm always a sucker for like the trope of like whether it's a curse or a prophecy like is this actual true or did i like make this into fruition so it became true 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always kind of like a sucker for that sort of idea, yeah. which is brought up at the end with the detective guy. He's like, well, I'll never know. Like, we'll never know if it's real or if it was forced. Also, it's really dumb, but her her husband at the beginning, I forget that actor's name, but I actually think he's really adorable. And I actually thought he was cuter than the cop. So I was annoyed that the hot dude died at the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, this is not Aiden Quinn's best look. I'll say that. But um, when I was a kid, I thought they were both unattractive. And I didn't understand Sally mm-hmm. whatsoever. As a woman now of 30, I'm like, ah, you know what? Sure. I get it. Yeah, for sure. Part of me was curious how they were going to kill him with the cyclists. Because he almost dies the first time with, like, these 25 cyclists coming down. Like, is this going to be, like, bones, like, mangled in, like, tires, parts? Like, how are they going to kill him with, like, 30 cyclists? Or just this Mufasa <laughs> dying where it's just, like, stampedes over. <laughs> For him and then it's just like dust <laughs> left remaining <laughs> oh my god but then yeah. the truck hits him so yeah my housemates and i kind of called that one it is it was just like look at all these cyclists there's no way he's not going to get hit by a truck <laughs> <laughs> i know and even like they even like turn and more come around the corner and you're like oh shit okay <laughs> it was about 15 seconds away from like a monty python sketch or something like there's even <laughs> oh, more um connor the point that you just brought up is something i have here in my notes about fighting the inevitable i think that we see that a lot between like the curse and then also sally accepting um her own magic and magic in her life um it's not until she actually does that that she can save both jillian and her like herself um because she was shutting herself off to her magic which was shutting herself off to her children um we can see that a few times where um uh god what are their names kylie and antonia they go to the botanical shop and they're like making like faces in the windows Mm -hmm. and then the kids come around doing that like witch witch you're a bitch thing and um Sally comes out and the whole kerfuffle happens and then the kids leave and they're like, well, you don't understand. You never would. And so like magic is such a core part of the family that Sally's like, it's no, we're we're not doing it. You're not learning it, whatever. And so she really has to accept that. But also for... um like Jillian too, I, I said before that like she really is that stereotype of a promiscuous woman of her like kind of acknowledging that that's the 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 role she was given because like you could see that even as children the ants were like Sally you're so talented and Jillian said what about me They're like well you'll, you'll find out you'll figure it out and so then immediately goes into oh her relationship with men it's like no she's so much more than that and you know believing that this was her role led her to like almost lose her soul to a fucking asshole I do that was think- another thing that no, was another thing too where she brings up this idea also with the the lover that like oh he's like you know from a place that's near transylvania and like then it like takes a while for him to die and stuff and so then i also got hung up on this idea of like was i supposed to believe this guy was supernatural or like a vampire or something (laughs) i mean maybe i mean i never thought but maybe (laughs) yeah i don't know yeah, I mean, Sam, I think that's a good point because it, I, 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 I do like Nicole. I think Nicole Kidman brings a little more chops to this movie than Bullock just because she emotes a little more, even though the parts are both emotive. Um, but 
I, I do think that, yeah, it defies type a, a little bit because it starts off early on where it's like it's cutting away to scenes with her and like her lovers and like they're drinking and so on. And it almost felt like it was going to like the next one was going to be like her standing on a balcony while Freebird plays like Jenny and Forrest Gump. And it's just like now she made all the wrong choices because she was selfish <laughs> or whatever the fuck. But no, she does really she does come into her own as a character in, in more developed and interesting ways than that, which I think is a strength of the film. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for me, something I love a lot about this movie is like how women are the protagonists and antagonists. And sometimes they're one in the same. Um, the, 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 the townsfolk women who are part of the, the PTA and who are like so mean to Sally and Sally, like obviously distrust them because of how they treated her when she was growing up. The fact that like, she was like, all right, I'm going to accept this part of myself. I'm going to accept this as my part of my history. I'm going to call and activate that phone tree. And then because like she was honest with herself and opening up to those people, they actually came through for her in like a really like big and crazy way. I can't say that like, if I got a phone call from Chloe Webb and that was like, hey, Sally's a witch and she just admitted that and we need you here ASAP with a broom that like I would actually go. But these women are interested and they care enough to go and they really bond through that experience. And so like, I think that even people we think that are judgmental and irredeemable bitches um, aren't necessarily the case. And it's just like a, a nice reminder. Let's sweep them out, ladies. It was like for sure. Let's clean house. I was for sure. Um, I was really waiting for like a moment where the townspeople are like, oh, we got to burn these witches because it was like so aggressively mean at some times where I was like, fuck, why do you guys even live here? And like, why are the townspeople, if they're so afraid of you, also just like letting you be here? Like at some point, I also just watched Bride of Frankenstein this morning. So I was like, there's got to be a mob that like all of a sudden forms and like tries to go after them. But like, yeah, one of the things that really brought me in, like in the final, like, like parts of the movie were like the group of women coming to the aid and also them like learning a little bit and like, just that idea of like, oh, all women are like a little magical and like you guys can all kind of evoke some of this. Like that like really did it for me. I was like, oh, cool. Like, I'm glad that like that's the point that came around because I wasn't even thinking that this would be a movie that necessarily tied up all of those loose ends. And so I was like, okay, cool. That like made me happy that we came back around to this. Yeah, I mean, what am I... (laughs) Something I loved so much though is um when the detective when gary's going around the town and like asking them um asking the townspeople about the sisters they're like and one owns that shop and she sells placentas and that kind of stuff like that gets me every time when he's like who are these people locally sourced (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but that makes me wonder and i asked this of my roommates before we started recording um and my final note here is like what the hell happened in the 90s and like early 2000s where everything was about witches and witchcraft because like everything that I was into back then was what it was like Sabrina charmed obviously hocus pocus this um what's it like the craft came out what about the 90s brought this back to the forefront was it because it was like 300 years since the witch trial like what was it thinking a little bit about that too because i just wrote a piece for cinema 76 that's about like the the reclamation of the witch as like a feminist icon and i like specifically detailed a few films in recent years that i think really have solidified that like we can use the witch like to be this icon of like what 
you know, female empowerment and like freedom looks like. But like one thing I thought about a lot was like, yeah, growing up, like I dressed up like a witch several times for Halloween. I watched Sabrina. I grew up on Charmed. Like I loved all of this stuff. And so like, it's also interesting just like maybe how some of these archetypes come around with the different waves of like feminism and stuff too. And then we start to see more of these like, you know, characters come about like more frequently. Yeah. Something else that like I have to remind myself about is like the first person who was accused of being a witch in like the whole, at least like Salem witch trials, um, American witch trials was um, a slave. It was an enslaved person. Um, So like I it's so important for me to remember that this isn't just like a like a white woman thing. Right. And I and I feel like like in, in a lot of cases, like, not that, like, white women, uh, including myself, I definitely put myself in this group, have, like, um, appropriated this, because obviously this was something that happened to white women, but, you know, there's something there that, like, I, I need to to analyze a little bit more, because the first person that was accused was Tatuba, was a black woman, and, and like something like the, the racial aspect I need to consider. So, you know, like I'm so glad that it's like back in popular culture because we can have these conversations and we can reclaim something like this. So I don't know, I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, that's all I really have for us to talk about practical magic. Um, anything you folks want to say about it? Um, before I headed over. One line that made me laugh was I think outside the botanical shop when Sandra Bullock goes, do you think they'd come up with a better insult after 300 years? That made me laugh. Mm -hmm. Um, I like how easily they got away with murder. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You just seduce the cop and he covers it up for you and you're all good. (laughs) You know, imagine writing that report though. Well, they, so they killed him. He turned into a ghost. They had to exercise him, blah, blah, blah. And then just be like, you know what? Eh. He also left for part of it. He so did, he was he like, did. I know that there was a ghost. And then I don't know what happens. I think he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, I would just briefly add that uh, though this, yeah, this, this sort of movie isn't really my cup of tea, I think. Largely... In terms of its uh, its dominant tone, which is uh, this uh, a tenderness that did at times make me feel like I was struggling through a room filled floor to ceiling with blankets, but <laughs> but is also is also Sam very like very much in your wheelhouse. Like this this film kind of really smacks of of what you seek in in character definition and development and what uh, what really draws you to. Uh, the tone of the film, at least as as far as that kind of dominant one. Um, so though it's not a movie that I would have sought out on my own, and I, I don't know if it's a movie I'll watch again, but it is definitely one that I'm glad I've watched because I know the ways in which it means a lot to you and reflects your character. So I was I was glad to have seen it. Aw, thanks for saying that, Dave. If I could live in a room full of blankets, I would be the <laughs> happiest person. <laughs> Uh, maybe that's my goal for the future (laughs) also we should like recreate that like midnight margaritas thing let's all get really really drunk drunk and just call each other sluts i was gonna say all of a sudden i felt like i was just watching the lighthouse i was like what the fuck did this come from (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. I think like that scene in particular, <laughs> you're just like, what? Well, <laughs> um, yeah. So that's practical magic. Thanks for all your thoughts and opinions on it. I love thinking so critically about movies like this. So thanks for that. So from one female heavy film to another, I'm going to pass it over to Connor with his pick. So much, Sam. Uh, we've had a we have a ton of really great, like different kinds of like Halloween and spooky movies. And the one I'm going with is Halloween 2018. Not the first, but the second reboot in the Halloween um, franchise. Uh, I picked this movie. I don't think this movie is like absolutely fantastic, but I think it's a really solid, uh, fun Halloween movie to watch with a group of people. Uh, I saw this in theaters probably like a week or so before Halloween itself. And this was probably, I watched this in theater. This is probably one of the most fun theater experiences that I had um, watching the big group of people, which in 2020 is something that I'm, you know, kind of desperately missed, that kind of like communal, like theater experience. Sometimes you get my showing of The Invisible Man, which was horrible audience. One guy was playing with his zipper the whole time, then I was talking to his mom on the phone. <laughs> but when it works, like when I saw Halloween or Cabin in the Woods or a few other horror movies, um, it can be, I feel like just really enhances uh, the film experience. So yeah, I picked Halloween 2018. This is the one with uh, where Jamie Lee Curtis is a grandma and Michael Myers comes back. Um, so yeah, released on October 19th, 2018. The budget was between $10 million to $15 million and it made total about $255 million with a net profit of about $128 million. And one thing I didn't know until kind of researching for this and watching it again was that this, or think about it, that this is a Blumhouse film. Mm. Um, so it totally makes sense that this has sort of been Blumhouse's wheelhouse for the past couple of years. Um, so yeah, I mentioned that this was, you know, basically a reboot of the Halloween franchise. It ignores every single movie except for the first one. Um, and for me, kind of a lot of themes that pop up, this idea of like generational trauma, how should we deal with trauma and, you know, does evil exist in a society and what should we do with it? But if it does exist, but before we kind of dive into that, who has seen, this Halloween reboot before. Yep. Oh, everybody. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did it feel kind of jumping back into it after two years or less? Um, I remember seeing this movie in the theater and coming out of it being like, I, this was exactly the movie I needed to see right now. I don't remember exactly like what was happened politically. It might have been like right around Kavanaugh. It could have fit. I think you're right. And I remember just like being so angry all the time. And then just watching Jamie Lee Curtis just like fucking kick ass as like um, a woman of age, like, and, and like not only a woman of age, but like a woman of age who's fucking healthy, who's hot, who's like embraced the gray hair and is still just bad ass and kicking ass was like, it was everything I needed and wanted. So I like, would I have, would I feel that way about this movie if that didn't happen in that time? I, I don't know, but um, I, it did. So that's how I feel about it. Sam, as someone who just found my first gray hairs for like the first time, like Jamie Lee Curtis rocking long gray hair is like really what I need to feel confident with my age. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the 30s is coming down the pike for us real quickly. It's like, right. Oh, I got it. Nine days? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I 
remember being very excited for this movie um, and also saw it in theaters, which we had like a really good watching experience. Um, I like this movie a lot. Um, you know, I don't think anything's going to beat the original. Like the first Halloween is just like such like almost essentially like a perfect like horror slash slasher. Um, I, um, but like this one like really worked for me, especially knowing like John Carpenter was like involved as far as like doing the score for this one over with his son and his godson, I think all worked on it together, which is like really cool. Um, so it felt like it had like the Carpenter blessing that I needed. Um, but yeah, like, you know, female-led horror is something that's super important to me and like I like watching generations of women like in these roles too um and you mentioned like also like generational trauma which I I love that horror is such like an interesting genre to explore so many different ideas and feelings and issues but like I just saw a movie called La Lorena which dealt with like trauma on a level of like a country dealing with trauma and so like I think that's becoming one of the more interesting things with like horror for me lately is like watching how people unpack this stuff especially like you know three generations of women all are somehow affected by Myers, even though like Jamie Lee is technically the only one that was attacked up until this point, um, which is very cool. Um, and I think they did like her a lot of justice and made her a total badass. So I, I really got what I needed from this reboot as well. I think that's a really good way to phrase it. Like, like uh, you got what you needed out of it. I think that's a really, yeah, I think that sums up how I feel too. Dave, what are your thoughts? I agree with that uh, in a way that I'm not maybe quite as satisfied with. I think it is exactly what I expected to a degree, uh, at least in this point in the series. Um, I prefer it to uh, Rob Zombie's 07 remake um, because it is more aligned with the early years of the franchise. It does feel a little more like, you know, like uh, I appreciate Rob Zombie taking a stab at something unique with the the material but it didn't really pan out but then i've never been much of a halloween guy to begin with to be honest i think the original one is obviously fantastic and the second one is is i think as good honestly i really like the second one uh third one's really great it's although totally different um and then it just sort of feels to me like a rehash over and over again which i think this did to a degree I do think the end is like a little surprising in terms of how badass and satisfyingly badass Jamie Lee Curtis becomes. Um, But at the same time, though this movie does seek to like disavow the entire franchise, except for the first movie, it still feels like Jamie Lee Curtis framed as like this crazed and like unbalanced, like survivalist by like the community and her family, which is why they're estranged in her concern for Michael coming back. It's like the kind of thing where we already know the mythos. We know the Laurie Strode story and her dynamic with Michael. So it just, it's just kind of a matter of time until she's inevitably proven right and kills him in the end. So it didn't feel like there were any surprises for me in this movie uh, as far as a plot or as far as advancing the mythos. What did surprise me though, and one thing that I did really appreciate is that while this is kind of a darker movie in terms of lighting in general, it's surprisingly brighter than the other installments of the franchise, which I appreciated. It kind of allows like, a new vantage point on um, on Mike Myers as this sort of like looming advancing threat. And uh, the camera work is really clever in terms of following him in this movie, which is done before, but it feels 
somehow uniquely mm-hmm. different in this movie or more like intimate. I don't know why. Maybe just because of the sense of lighting. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I think it, it's a strong installment in the franchise, but it's a franchise that if if I'm going to watch a slasher movie, I would rather them be all gas, no breaks like Jason or, or Freddy. So for me, it's a franchise that I, I can't appreciate from a distance, but this one, like a lot of the ones after the first three, doesn't do a whole lot for me beyond it being a good Halloween movie, I guess. Someday we'll get more Jason movies. Just wait, I'm sure Blumhouse is working on one. They seem to be doing everything these days. There's so many rights issues, like who knows? But they finally, uh, Show Factory finally came out with like a big mega like collection of like all the Jason movies, which has like never happened before. So that is very exciting. Nice. Cool. Well, thanks for um, sharing your thoughts. I guess before we go further, let me just give a brief plot synopsis. Uh, on October 29th, 2018, Michael Myers, who's been locked up in a psychiatric institution for 40 years, escapes during a nighttime transfer. I'm sure we'll talk about the nighttime transfer. Uh, and goes on a killing spree 40 years to the day uh, after his first spree in 1979, which was the first Halloween movie. Uh, I mentioned, you know, it ignores everyone except for the first one. Hijinks ensue as Michael's on the loose and Jamie Lee Curtis, who's reprising her role, must make peace with her daughter and granddaughter to try to survive this Halloween. Um, I think what was really interesting watching it was uh, directed by David Gordon Green, who did Pineapple Express, Your Highness, and a bunch of really other just terrible Danny McBride comedies, but some really amazing shows like Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals and The Righteous Gemstones on HBO. Um, I don't know how well Eastbound and Down holds up these days, but I really enjoyed Vice Principals, and from what I've heard, The Righteous Gemstones is also um, really great. So I think interesting that Green and Danny McBride um, was sort of tackle like the Halloween franchise and get Carpenter's Blessing. Um, and him and Blumhouse, you know, the three of them actually got um, Carpenter to come onto the project. Because I think Season of the Witch, Halloween 3 was the last one that he worked on ever, like even at, in a producer role. And so he came back and he did the music, um, as you mentioned, Tori, the son and his um, godson. And so I think this movie is just a really interesting blend of like Blumhouse sort of taking over the horror genre, these two, you know, you know, these a lot of kind of stoner comedy people coming in to make this pretty effective um, horror movie. And I think for me, a lot of what makes this movie feel successful is sort of this core theme. You mentioned, Tori, how the horror genre can tackle so many different kinds of ideas. Um, and so I guess, how do you guys feel about sort of this family dynamic with Jamie Lee Curtis, went through this really traumatic event, Judy Greer, her daughter, Karen, and then um, Abigail, the actress's name, uh, Andy Matitchak, who I haven't, I don't think you've seen it, anything else. Um, but how did you guys sort of feel about their family dynamic um, as it sort of played and evolved throughout the movie? I, Judy Greer pisses me off a lot, honestly, just as an actress. Oh, really? It's nothing, it's nothing against her as a, a human being. It's just like the roles that she has been in leading up to this, I, they're the worst characters, you know? Like they're the worst kinds of people. So it's hard for me to disassociate like her from these like shitty ass characters she's played. So, you know, immediately I'm like distrusting Judy Greer. But like, I think she's a fine person. I mean, I don't even know her. So like, who I, I whatever. <laughs> I'm neutral on her as a person. Um, Don't talk about my Judy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as far as like um, Karen and Laurie, I, I have a lot of questions. I think like, um, like how, how did Laurie get all of this money to make this house? How did all of this happen? 
what like where like a male figure here when when Karen was taken away at 12 years old where the hell did she go and so like how is she how does she even have this relationship with her mother um if she was taken away at 12 and like presumably you'd think oh well she got her back at some point but like when um Laurie's interviewed by those two asshole um podcast people um yeah fuck those guys so i I guess Lori will not be calling in for this episode it sounds like (laughs) um but she's like you know i didn't get her back so like what happened i guess i just have questions unanswered questions and that's where i'll leave it hmm yeah i mean i also agree with you where i feel like the judy greer character really pisses me off um, and I feel like that happens a lot. Like there's a movie that came out this year I just saw called Relic, which is also similar with about like three generations of women kind of all dealing with this like one major issue together. Um, and the mom care seems to always piss me off. Like she always feels like the least relatable. Uh, but I, I, but I also wonder if like that's maybe some of like my own bias and issues there. And I like, I'm interested too if like, cause you know, they're working on like making this like a trilogy, like the Lori stories. Um, like if they're going to unpack more of like their relationship and like, like, cause I try to think a little bit more and I'm like, man, like, yeah, I guess like having a survivalist parent could be super traumatic. Like <laughs> yeah. for someone like that, that probably fucking sucks. So it's like interesting, like maybe checking some of my own bias and also like, but like also wanting to know more about that stuff too. Cause I'm like, well, like why, like, you know, she, she feels like a bitch. <laughs> like why she's such a bitch to Lori. But I, I guess it's like easy for us to also feel like that too, because mm-hmm. like one, we know what Lori went through and yeah. we know Mike Myers is coming back. So like we are already on Lori's team, whereas yeah. like she doesn't have that confirmed. So like maybe. And we love Jamie Lee Curtis. just in general too like she's absolutely fantastic it's also just a storytelling device in the sense that like there is this you know it's there's this generation that there in three generations there is this middle ground between grandfather or grandparent and grandchild um that is navigated by someone who has a more informed perspective on both of them as people maybe yeah Yeah. so I, i think that's definitely a part of it especially because there is like this uh this sort of a strange family environment and vibe because of uh, not only the residual, the effects of the residual trauma Lori's experienced in inflicting what we find to be perfectly reasonable care for her family um, and a child's difficulty with reasoning that as a child, absorbing that as their parents' behavior. So I, th- I think it does a pretty good job of defining that intergenerationally as far as like screenwriting goes. The, the part where Karen and was it Allison? are in the basement and she's pretending like oh I don't know I can't do it I can't do it just to get Michael Myers like in shot and she's like you know like fooled you son of a bitch or whatever she says I don't know I liked that I was like yeah Judy well then it pants to like the hat like Jamie Lee Curtis's face is like half lit and then she just comes up Halloween (laughs) so good um, sort of bouncing off the family dynamic, uh, the, something I didn't think about when watching the theaters was the just role of men in general in this movie. Um, they're all pretty fucking useless to just terrible. Um, That's pretty the, true I, to the Halloween franchise, honestly, also, yeah. which is to its credit. So watching it, it was interesting thinking about 
Lori's relationship with Michael, uh, Karen's relationship with the dad, whose name I forget. Uh, but he made me laugh, the kind of like useless, bumbling dad. When Lori comes, it's like, ban your dad, ban your dad. No alarms, door open. He's like, get out of my house. I can defend my family. <laughs> You're like, no, you can't. Um, and then Allison with, um, like, I forget uh, her, like, boyfriend who, like, gets drunk and then is just, like, throws her phone in pudding? I don't it, know what, yeah, what was that? <laughs> Gelatin? I don't know what kind of substance that was. Uh, but it was just interesting sort of seeing how these three women interact with, like, the main men in their lives. Um, yeah, I also, like, I like when a movie, like, does what I want them to in the moment. Like, when the movie starts and it's, like, kind of following these like podcasters i was like man these people are annoying really don't give a fuck about them why am i spending time with them and then you get that like awesome like bathroom stall shit where like the bitch gets like murdered right there and i was like oh cool like i don't have to deal with you guys <laughs> great that's a callback to a different <laughs> movie right maybe like, oh, there's so many yeah i th- i know i'm I find the I find the ones after three boring, so I like haven't really watched Same. them. Yeah, I have a vague recollection of there being some kind of like jeep vanny thing, a mom and her child, and Mike Myers takes the the, oh. the, the car while they're in the bathroom. They're out like in the middle of nowhere. Maybe that's four. That sounds familiar. I don't know. I'm glad um, you guys brought up the podcasters because I think I thought it was sort of funny to take like, well, what would a Michael Myers movie look like in the like my favorite murder, true crime, yeah, and generate you know um, epoch that it feels like we're living in. Um, and so I thought that was a really kind of funny way to start the movie, and also to like real quick now that we've been doing this for two years because when we started it, you know, we were only doing it for like three months. Like, why are they live recording in the graveyard? It's not like they're taking notes; they're like full on like recording their podcast that Judith Myers grave like i just thought there were lots of kind of like wow these people are just like absolutely the worst and like going into the psychiatric institution like antagonizing michael myers and like no way some dumb podcasters could get a like a mask from like a sister and district attorney did he like have his family kidnapped or something to like ransom the mask can we also talk about that wild the the like the I don't even know, like, a, a kind way to phrase the institution that Michael was held in. I, I guess it's prison, um, but it's prison for folks who've presumably been convicted of, like, pretty violent crimes yeah. with perhaps the insanity plea. Uh, I, I don't really know how to describe that better. How do you all feel about that scene and, like, the, the prison bus and, and that whole thing? visually i thought it looked really great like i thought the weird kind of like checkered courtyard um these like really aggressive like anchors tying everybody to them like the yellow square so i thought like visually that scene looked i thought the bus scene was like the mist coming in and all the headlights and like the bus lights like i thought visually all that was like really kind of interesting and really cool but then it's like when he sort of like I don't know, when they hold the mask up and everybody starts like screaming and losing their shit, you're just like, yeah. this is kind of like goes on just a little, I feel like it all goes on just a little too long. I mean, I feel like I get triggered pretty much anytime I see institutions like that in movies and like any like kind of medium now, you know, like prisons, like mental hospitals, all that stuff, like just feels like it's never going to be de- 
picked it in a way that'll make me feel comfortable. So I immediately get cringy with them. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I like, I don't know that that always bugs me, but I also know, like, I guess it kind of has to start there because like, where else is Mike Myers going to be for all of this time? So they have to put him in one of these places, but yeah, it's just hard. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I was watching it and I was so offended, but then I was like, is this really like where I should be thr- making my line in the sand? Like, honestly, considering like what I'm watching and I like Connor, the part that you brought up when they bring up the mask and everyone starts flipping out, like, I like watching that I was disgusted, but then a part of me was like, you brought up this Connor in your notes of like evil, the presence of actual evil. I mean, you know, um, this kind of feels like I'm like rationalizing everything, but I can sort of understand like why that scene happened if that's the point they're trying to get across that like he's not human really. He's like this superhuman. He's just like he's just evil incarnate. I I think I could be a little bit more forgiving that way, but I still like I just I don't know how to feel about it. I mean, that's such a hard thing with these slashers that, especially like these franchised ones, because they're trying to like, I I mean, Jason has the same thing too, where there are certain movies that try to humanize him and like give him this like, you know, emotional kind of trigger. And then others that are like, no, this is like just this like fucking killing machine. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, we watched a movie the other night called like New Year's Evil, just because like, I'm trying to watch a bunch of slashers. Um, But like, like we like the killer in it was so human, like he was just this like, kind of like weird, good looking dude, like kind of middle aged, like that was wearing a bunch of costumes. And Garrett and I were both just like, man, it's weird seeing a slasher movie where the slasher is just like, a regular person like there it feels like there is always this like oh well like maybe there's something more going on it feels like they're all trying to not necessarily say they're like mentally ill but like they're you know they're on this like other level that like us humans aren't on it's it's odd yeah I think you know I wrote down I don't know if I put this in the I don't know if I put this down in the notes but the idea of like you know does this movie watching it and I didn't really think about it before but can restorative justice exist for Michael Myers? You know, I think that, <laughs> I'm sorry. Do we really want to have that conversation? <laughs> I don't really want to, but I think it's interesting that the movie kind of is like approaching that idea of like, you know, what does it mean for this person to like exist in a society? Um, and I think it's interesting that there seems to be this like infectious energy. I mean, it's the scene that the movie opens on. Uh, and spoiler alert, the doctor who's Lori calls the new Loomis. Like, I think there's a fun kind of little, some tongue in cheeks, like you're the new Loomis. You're this person. You're mm-hmm. this. You know? um, and so it's like, he becomes like infected and like obsessed with Michael. Like, I think sometimes like we all go down true crime rabbit holes that maybe are not like the healthiest thing for like our mental health. And it's speaking for me personally. Um, so I just think it's interesting. <laughs> this like is evil. Is this just Michael Myers or is this like, idea of like what's it like to kill like infectious like I think I don't know if the movie really lands on anything but it was interesting watching it this time sort of thinking about um those ideas and then Lori just you have this person saying I'm waiting to kill him like I lured him here to kill him like this house was built to destroy Michael Myers like no restorative justice at all for Michael Myers it's like a Kevin McAllister house yeah Oh my god, I love the, the, yeah, it's like this trap house where she clears every room and, like, punches a button and this giant, like, roll door comes down the block and yeah. off. 
I, I'm going to expose a little bit of myself here when I'm asking you guys this question. Have you ever thought about how you would survive like a serial killer or like if, if somebody was going to come and invade your house, like what you would put in place? Because like, that's that house. Everything I was like, well, I would block it like this. <laughs> it was there. But like, have you guys ever thought about that? Or Not a room full of mannequins. <laughs> I don't know oh, why yeah. she did <laughs> I mean, I feel like just in general, I'm always worried about like, you know, something like, I don't know, like the other day, like we were hanging out in the living room and there was a noise that we heard and Garrett walked up the stairs to check what it was. And I was like, why are you checking? He's like, well, like, I don't know. What if there's a person? I'm like, what if there's a person? Like, what are you going to do? Like, go grab a knife or something first, obviously. Like, but like, that's like my first thought is like, oh, like if there is someone here or if that noise that I'm hearing is a person, like what's my first move grab right now? Where could I run to? Like, I don't know. But like, I, I think that's also like a, you know, female true crime obsessed kind of thing too so yeah i have baseball bats around my house good you should i definitely got an escape plan yeah Mm -hmm. i thought about this many times (laughs) okay good i'm i'm i i expected to hear that answer from (laughs) but i was also kind of worried to be like am i doing erotic (laughs) that question makes you uh kind of reminds me of um the friend's boyfriend who's like babysitting the, the babysitter yeah who's like fuck it like grabs the knife and like goes after mm-hmm. him um so I, I don't know i would hope that i would try to be brave to help but i would probably just end up dying i guess like how would you die in a movie wasn't that a whiteboard question we talked about a while ago yeah yeah um, that reminds me of that i mean this had good kills and it definitely made mike myers feel like really scary which yep. i feel like are are two of my big things with like slasher movies like kills as far as quantity and quality of the kills um house uh slasher is and then dope final girl so actually it checks off like all three of my like what does a good slasher need i guess I didn't think about it before, but there are, like, watching it this time, there are so many neck and face kills. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, every single death is from him either, like, tearing open someone's mouth and jaw, stabbing through the neck, stabbing through the face, smashing someone's head, stomping on their head. I don't know if there's anything. Yeah, it's not too far off base for Mike Myers. Yeah. Mike Mike Myers. One day, though, they should cast Mike Myers as... There's a... I bought the score for this movie because I love it so much, but, like, one one of the first times I actually put it on to listen to, the song came on that plays in the bathroom when he goes and, like, kills them, and you hear, like, the teeth falling on the floor and stuff, and I, like, got creeped out sitting in my house just, like, hearing that song play because it was, like, oh, God, like, I know what that's from, which was, like, kind of a cool, like, after effect. Like, I like when a movie still has me, like, a little jumpy after I've seen it, so big thumbs up for that one. Definitely, when I saw this movie, maybe... I don't know, motion lights are scary. And I have like five of them that are like around the, house, like the apartment that we're renting, like in the, the home we're renting in. And then it's just like, oh my God, my, like when it goes out, it's just someone going to be there. And mm-hmm. I think that kill when the kind of, the kid who like tries to kiss her, I kind of yeah. forget all these kids' names, um, but like matter. they don't matter. Um, but it's like, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, you're in the darkness there. I can't really tell who it is. And like, I don't know, just the idea of, I feel like, yeah, as you said, Tori, so many of the kills are just like really effective and kind of like ramping up the scares. Yeah. 
Um, one of my kind of stand-up characters who just has a little bit part is the like young black kid that yes. he babysat. He was so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope he pops up in the future movies. Um, but I thought that was a pretty effective scene too. I know that was in the trailer. That's what I remember from the trailers when the friend goes like, nothing's in here. And she pushes like on the closet door and it like bounces back twice. Third time opens and Michael Myers is there. Um, that might be my like second favorite kind of sequence. Um, the whole everything in the house there, I thought was really cool. Yeah. Can you imagine being like eight years old and being that funny? <laughs> like having no. that timing at eight? <laughs> the hell? <laughs> um, I worked on one line here. I want to be, I want to be staying up clipping my nasty ass toenails. <laughs> This is really funny. What does he say when um, she goes into his room to like check around and she does the, hello, what are you doing here? And then she like spooks him and he's like, oh, hell, like, fuck it, whatever he says. Oh, so good. <laughs> Did I ever tell you what my sister Sophia called her mos- mosquito bite over the summer? Mm-mm. She got bit by a mosquito and it was itchy and she called it a lump of disrespect. And I was like, <laughs> man, that might be the funniest fucking thing I ever heard a kid say. There's no business being that funny. No business. I was like, fuck you. Um, Cool. Any other thoughts on Halloween 2018? I'm glad you picked it. I had fun rewatching it. Awesome. Flashers are the best. (laughs) And also, fuck people who say, just get over your trauma. It's not like, you know, this is 2020, you know, killed, he only killed five people. Like, fuck that. Fuck that attitude. Yeah, fuck Karen. Dave, <laughs> not you, Dave, Dave, the character. Mm. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for a great discussion on Halloween. Definitely recommend giving it a rewatch. Um, the sequels were pushed a year. That sequel, Halloween Kills, was supposed to come out this year, but then both of them got pushed um, to the following two years. So be curious to see so, what those ones look like. Even if, like, will we even have movie theaters to see them in at this point? Like, the drive, driving's forever. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm going to turn it over to Dave to round out our spooky megasode. Yeah. And, um, you know, the one I chose is a a movie that for me has stayed with me for a very, very long time. Um, It was a movie that I didn't, I I heard described to me before I saw it during a game of Manhunt in the woods. So it definitely made uh, quite a lasting impact even before I saw it. Uh, we're talking in this, in this case about, uh, 1999's, the original, the Blair Witch Project. Um, it was a film written, edited and directed, uh, by Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez stars Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard. Um, it is followed by two vastly inferior sequels. The first of which, uh, Blair Witch to Book of Shadows is among the worst movies I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> I just rewatched that in preparation for <laughs> this episode today. Uh, I didn't get back to uh, a movie just called Blair Witch, which is another uh, Adam Wingard movie, uh, which mm-hmm. yeah, didn't do it for me. But um, this movie, on the other hand, uh, has really, really made a huge impact and is probably my second favorite horror movie after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is why I chose it. Um, so The Blair Witch Project is a film, uh, a, a documentary of sorts about three uh, film students who decide that they're going to go into the woods of Burkittsville, formerly Blair, um, in order to investigate the mythos and uh, folklore surrounding the mysterious Blair Witch. 
they document their journey into the woods as they become increasingly lost for mysterious reasons uh, until it finally culminates in uh, the students realizing that perhaps they have uh, bitten off more than they can chew and are up against something a great deal grander than their initial project had imagined. And there's a lot of interesting uh, factoids about this movie as far as production and as far as its marketing. A lot of notes that I have about why I think it's great and a lot of notes about why I think it's scary. But before we get into that, um, Tori, I know you've seen this movie a number of times. For Sam and Connor, was this your first viewing? Am I right about that? Oh, Sam, you've seen it before. Okay, cool. Well, let's uh, let's go with the two uh, perspectives that are more familiar. We'll start with uh, Tori and Sam, and then we'll segue into Connor's first take on the 1999 Blair Witch Project. I mean, this is such an interesting movie because it, like, I was, like, nine years old when it came out, and I... I can pretty clearly remember like the marketing for this movie, which is like really weird. Like I was, I mean, I was such a scaredy cat for like years. So like, I didn't watch this until I was like a teenager. Um, but I'm pretty sure like my parents went and saw it on like a date together and stuff. And I just remember like being a kid and legitimately being scared that it was actually real and not like a fake like thing that was like just on, in the movies um, because they tried to like kind of market it as this like true event thing. Um, so it like still kind of haunts me for that reason. Um, and for some reason, I don't know if you guys remember if I was up before, like at Blockbuster, they used to have the thumb movies and they were all like riffs on movies. There's one called the Blair Thumb. So I've seen that like multiple times and I saw that before I saw the Blair Witch Project. Um, but yeah, like this is this is such an effective horror movie and definitely one that like, I can put on is just a like, oh, I just like want this in the background or something because I think this movie is like so fun and enjoyable and um, it is like legitimately scary. Even just the whole being lost in the woods um, aspect of it is really horrifying because that seems like a thing I could very easily do, especially growing up in New England with like, we even had woods behind my house. Um, but then like add there's like a scary like cursed witch aspect to the whole thing and that's like even worse um and the ending of this movie like for sure like sticks with me um so yeah this is a, this is a fantastic choice for this yeah um I think uh, haunted um the witch uh, speaks yeah um, this is like a master class of found footage. I don't know if it's like the first, but it, it like if it is one of the first, it's like one and done because like that's it. You don't really need any more. Like I, I saw Paranormal Activity, the first one. I, I would put that one also like on a similar level for me of how like they fucked me up watching them. <laughs> that movie like really like deeply fucked me up. But um, like I I do think now watching the movie again i watched it last night the end is scary it's also a little i don't want to say lame that's not fair but i think that it's very hard to make something like that scary and to make it believable mm -hmm. so like with what they could do and what they had and and everything i think it's like super well done i think it's like the best it could be um I did not watch it. Obviously, when it first came out, I was 
eight years old. Um, that said, I did watch the Scooby-Doo version, which I'm putting in the chat right now. Um, so the Sc Scooby-Doo came up with like a 20 minute episode, um, that spoofed the whole movie. So I watched it. It was kind of, it was funny, but it was like scary. And so like, th I, that's how I knew about the movie. So when I finally watched the movie for the first time, I was like, oh, so this is <laughs> literally the Scooby-Doo show that I saw. So it was like that movie. Um, so Tori, much like your, uh, the Blair Thumb, um, mine was Scooby-Doo. <laughs> the Scooby-Doo yep. Project, I think is what they called it. Um, but yeah, really love this movie. Nice. And that brings us then, of course, to Connor, who's seeing this for the first time. How did that go? Uh, so this movie is sort of what well, is in Blade. We, we talk, I think, a lot about like childhood memories that are just like there in our mind. And the VHS cover of Blair Witch mm -hmm. um, going to the Hollywood video in Woodbury, New Jersey. Um, I just get my kids movies, we get my video games. And then I remember Signs of the Lambs with like the moth over the mouth mm -hmm. and the Blair Witch Project and like the horror sections being like, I don't know, that just, like, is freaking me out. And so then as, like, I got older and then actually I liked horror movies, um, I just avoided this one because I just kind of felt like it was, like, parody to death, as you brought up with the Thumb Project and the Scooby-Doo <laughs> Project. Uh, and so going into this movie, I was sort of like, this is either going to be still super spooky or, like, really dumb. And it was really spooky. <laughs> um, I was surprised at how much I was, like, kind of jump-scared at this movie, how much this movie um, kind of, like, gripped me affected me how drawn in i was by its premise by the world that they're in um so i would say this movie still holds up probably not as good as you know back in when it came out what, in 1999 mm -hmm. so like i'm sure seeing it then and really not seeing anything like it before um it's hard to replicate that experience but just going into it as a, a you know 20 something who's seen tons of movies and like spoofs of it um this is i think still really effective all these years later yeah, I tend to agree with all that. Sam, as you mentioned, uh, it's not, yeah, it is not the first found footage movie, but it is definitely um, the one that, that set kind of the gold standard, in my opinion. But not only my opinion, that's kind of the prevailing opinion. Um, and I think there are some very specific reasons for that that I'm going to get to uh, a little bit later on. But before I get to um, my feelings about the movie, as well as some production notes and marketing notes... Um, was there anything that really kind of stood out or anything that you felt worked very well or by contrast really didn't land in this movie? I think that this movie does an excellent job of making you feel the emotions that the people are going through. Like you're furious with Heather, you're suspicious of Mike, you're worried about Josh, like you really feel all of those things deeply. And I think it also does a great job of making you feel really like you feel isolated and like totally discombobulated, like having no idea where they are, how long they've been there, what day it is. Cause they went over a weekend. And by that point you're like, is it the same week? Like what time is it? So like being able to empathize and feel like you're going through that experience is so easy. Visually for being, you know, just set in the woods of Maryland, um, such an effective job of building atmosphere um specifically when they enter the like stick man forest um i think that's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie of they just sort of like and it it's very similar to a scene from the ritual which was a netflix movie that came out about two years ago which kind of has watching this like oh this is very much like a blair witch kind of adjacent film um i thought that was for me 
just like all these stick men hanging, like just such a great job of like, you know, we only have a couple thousand dollars. How, what's the spookiest way we can, you know, the creepiest way we can like set up this journey for these three poor people who are just trying to do a film project. Yeah. I feel like I, I, I mean, the stick figures are like, so like such a good, like visual, like thing for this movie and I feel like I remember being a kid and being scared that I would like find those in the woods behind my house and stuff which is like really funny that like you know like Sam and Connor mentioned stuff too like it's interesting that this was a film that like was such a part of our memory growing up even though we didn't see it until we were older but it's like it's there like that's a part of my childhood because of that stuff and I don't I can't really think of like other like horror movies specifically that are are really like that for me. There's like stuff I like remember, um, but nothing that like really like is a feels like a part of my childhood in this way. Um, but yeah, I mean, like as I've gotten older too, I've just become such a fan of like low budget horror and just how much you can do with so little. Um, you know, I saw kind of a, like, the only film that's, like, been made in quarantine, uh, called Host, uh, that's on Netflix, which was, like, pretty creepy, um, and so it's just, like, it's very cool what you can do when you are limited by, you know, money or time or a crazy infectious, like, virus, like, all this shit, like, that can just, like, affect filmmaking and finding creativity that way. Um, and I feel like this stands out, like, as, like, one of one of the shining stars for, like, low-budget horror. Tori, what you were just saying about uh, low-budget horror films and restrictions, uh, this film had an estimated budget of about $600,000. Um, it then went on to a global box office gross when adjusted for inflation to over $250 million, uh, making it one of the most profitable movies ever made. Uh, some pretty astounding notes as well about the production of this movie was that the three lead actors were hired based on their ability to improvise. The dialogue of the film is almost entirely improvised, maintained as a constant in-character exercise on set, uh, with the timeout safe word being taco. Uh, so that's when they know that they could speak freely outside of their, uh, their sort of like method performances. Um, the actors themselves filmed the movie uh, rather than a director or uh, a cinematographer they were pretty much handed over the tools to make the movie themselves um, and the actors were provided with coordinates for various locations throughout the seneca creek state park uh, with no prior knowledge of what set pieces or props they might uncover at each uh, <clears throat> additionally they were provided no knowledge of what would happen each night of the shoot and were increasingly deprived of both food and sleep so it's definitely a situation where the meta filmmaking really steps in as far as the production of the film. And I think really translates in the desperation of the performances. Uh, the marketing was also really uh, pretty well storied as we've covered. Uh, the film was thoroughly marketed as a true story and a legitimate documentary. So much so that a web archive of material and a discovery channel mockumentary, The Curse of the Blair Witch, were launched in advance of the film's release to further cement the mythos. You can find that on YouTube. It just sort of further explores the lore of the Blair Witch that we're treated to in the movie. Uh, and to further blur the lines of film and reality, the three lead actors signed off on a non-compete clause good for a year after the film's production. Their IMDb actor pages listing them as, quote, missing, presumed dead. Uh, there were even a series of uh, missing persons posters printed and circulated. So convincing was this public campaign that friends and acquaintances of the Donahue family reportedly called and wrote in with their sympathies. 
<laughs> so it really was uh, a movie that sought to frame itself as uh, as a document of reality rather than uh, a film experience, which I think translates really well in the filmmaking. Uh, do you guys have any feelings on that? This movie, I feel like, could only exist from like 97 to like maybe 01. Mm. Like that kind of like very early internet where like people could research things, could look up things, but you didn't have, you know, a billion, you know, the studio, you know, how Hollywood looks is so different now too. That is, I don't know if, I mean, this might be the best movie that fits the time that's ever been released. Like if this released in 2010, no. Like if this is, you know, found footage kind of started then, maybe in the eighties, like that kind of marketing information would not have gotten out like that. Um, so I think sort of like maybe this is the best meeting of like time and place for a film's release. Yeah, that makes sense. Two thoughts. One, they tried to do something similar with the first Paranormal Activity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember this, but I remember that um, they made you go to this website to request it in your city to be like, this movie is like, it's so real. It's so scary. Um, but this is about like real people. So like, if, if you want it, you got to let us know. And so like, I, me and my friends, we actually like went to the website and we put in our information to be like, we want to see this. And then we did. And after it, like, I, I cannot express to you the genuine fear that I had after that movie and like how, like a month or so later I had like a panic attack because of the movie so like <laughs> it definitely fucked with me but then the actors were on um god what what's that asshole's name Joel McHale his um the soup they like they were on it like briefly and oh, I was like, a bad guy? I like Joel McHale yeah, like Joel yeah. McHale. has he done bad stuff he's uh, a bad guy kind of a prick yeah uh, that sucks it, like like as a a general human being like i don't know uh, anything about his, like, politics or whatever but he just like uh, um sounds like he treats people like shit um mm. anyway but that's hearsay i you can <laughs> feel however you'd like about him um a little bit more negative than neutral about joel McHale than judy greer but like whatever <laughs> um, <laughs> um so, so that's thought number one thought number two is like these people were they like so new into acting that like they didn't have like their sad card or whatever because like a part of me is thinking like god shouldn't someone have gotten involved of like the depriving of food thing because like (laughs) (laughs) that's messed up but like yeah it's the way to do it i guess it was an agreed upon condition that was like thoroughly part of the like the contract and waiver signed and so on but at the same time the film definitely made a huge impact on them as actors and professionals because uh, the t- the two uh, male leads, Michael C. Williams and Joshua Leonard, have barely appeared in anything since. And Heather Donahue, the only thing that I can name offhand that she's appeared in since this movie has been one episode of the first season of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Weird. But outside of that, it seems as though this this film kind of in a way like in almost like a Seinfeldian or like Friends sitcom kind of way became such an iconic performance that it or a Michael Keaton kind of thing where to a degree it defined and ruined their careers. But I, from what I understand, the royalties have been pretty generous for this movie, especially given the windfall of cash that it, it earned by contrast to its budget. Also, it just sounds for like them. Music, uh, d- uh, impossible movie to make. Like everything being kind of improvised, going through all of that, like, damn. 
Also, if someone said they were going to deprive me of food, like, I would not function. I would lay there and cry. <laughs> like, I would not do anything else. I think that's what makes it so tough with, like, because method and, you know, processes like that can get such great results. But then there's also this kind of, like, problematic side of that kind of, like, mm. method or, like, in, like, being that person acting. But, man, when, you know, because, <clears throat> you know, just looking into the production, during the one, maybe that's like the Saturday night when they, you know, the director and whoever, they're like play babies crying on like a jukebox, mm-hmm. like just placing that in the woods. If you're like, that feels like real fear. That's like, like, they just like, why are these kids crying? Like that is probably, yeah. I don't know, definitely for me, like top three, like most effective scares of the entire film is these like wailing, crying, running around noises, like surrounding the tent. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've got a lot of thoughts about why I think this movie is, great and very scary which i'd like to cover very briefly and of course feel free to chime in it's just a movie that i've thought about a lot as i've seen it probably at least 10 times um and thinking about it this time again was it was a treat in terms of writing down some of this information so some of the impressions that i got this time around was that how much time we spend with just these three characters um like in particular uh, at the ho- in the hotel at the beginning how pronounced uh, their character traits are and their dealings with each other while still safe and comfortable and while we're still getting to know them, um, it feels very convincing in terms of establishing these characters in a way that would normally feel like a bit of a waste of time with a horror or slasher movie in particular, because we know they're just going to be peeled off. But there's just the three of them, which really aids the movie, I think, in that regard. Um, and we also uh, spend a lot of time learning about their individual personalities via interaction with each other and how they respond to the increasing desperation of the situation as the film goes on. Uh, it makes that in that way for me really hard not to get sucked into the meta reality of the marketing and the faux reality of the movie. And it's it's also, it, it's a movie that definitely I appreciate as like either a paranormal horror movie or just like a desperate document of people getting lost and really concerned. Um, but there's also this paired escalation with the desperation of their situation. The further they get into the woods, the longer they're trapped seemingly uh there is this escalation of nightly encounters and morning aftermath uh the first is the snapping branches at night and then the rock piles in the morning then it's after it's the tent being attacked at night and then the weird slime on josh's gear almost marking him uh then when josh disappears his screams are heard at night and the following morning his teeth and tongue are found in a package outside of the tent so it really holds your attention through escalation while also allowing us to explore the desperation of the situation via these characters in a non-paranormal sense. What yeah. do you guys think about that? That, yeah. that um, bundle reveal is great. Um, Cause mm-hmm. it's just shows enough to be like, is that a tooth? Is that parts of like brain matter and eyeball? Like it's really like, you know, it's something kind of gory and not good, um, but just kind of how that, and I imagine that was just Heather doing that. You know, there's no cinematography or anything like that. So I thought just right. the way that she kind of captured that on purpose or not uh, was like super effective. And also her decision not to tell Mike about it, which mm-hmm. is interesting. It's also interesting, like, I don't know, just how this movie makes these characters feel like so trapped, even though there like is this like expanse of like forest around them. But like, man, like it feels it feels weirdly claustrophobic in a way, even though they're stuck in the woods. And that's just like such a fascinating contradiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got some notes on that as far as why I find it so scary. 
some other notes really quickly about why I find it so great is that time after time, and I've seen it many times and every time, my stomach drops when it's that rough cut of Heather asking, did you take it? And immediately understanding that she means the map. And just like this notion, like just within that one line from a harsh cut is just like that, that immediate moment of like, oh, they're fucked. And then like it goes on. And finally, we, we see them going south all day after crossing a log and they see the same log. And it's just like this increasing feeling of just like uh, they're doomed in this weird, inex- inexplicable way, yeah. which is part of the Blair Witch mythos is that like she can kind of use the weaponize the woods and create these sort of non spaces that occupy the world we live in such that you could tread the same area all day for 15 hours walking for miles and end up right where you started, which is so terrifying. Horrifying. I Uh, would have like straight up murked Mike if he had like (laughs) into the the creek. Like the the restraint that Josh and Heather showed in that moment, I was like, God bless. That man would have been dead. One of my favorite lines in the movie, you have betrayed us beyond way fucking beyond <laughs> <laughs> also uh, one thing that i find really fascinating about this as a found footage movie is that it explains itself like if you watch like cloverfield which i do think is a fun movie but it, it, i have its problem my problems with it as a found footage movie because it's like at this point in this movie like he's the the character holding the camera is like scaling like a fallen skyscraper onto another and is still filming the difference with this, though, is that Heather's compulsion to continue filming and documenting the experience is a kind of defense mechanism. So it justifies the existence of the footage and how complete it is. Mm-hmm. It like really explains itself in a really thoughtful and like subdued and quietly pronounced way. I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, right. Because there is always that element of like, well, why were you filming? Right. And the, the, like, mm-hmm. the only comment I have about that, that probably the only negative thing that I have to say about this movie is like at the very end, I think things go a little haywire with sound and with footage. So, you know, we're, oh. You I know. can't wait to talk <laughs> about that. I can't wait. So yes, go on. So I've been thinking a lot about this the past like day or so of was a camera picked up by someone who was other than Mike and Heather and filming part of it? Because there are moments where Heather is screaming, but we're watching Mike go down the steps and Heather is screaming and it's not where like the camera is. Like she is far away. And so I'm like, who is filming that? Oh. That's why I think the end of this movie is one of the scariest endings to any movie I've ever seen, which I will get to in just one moment. Before I do want to make note of two other things that I think make this movie really scary, and that's that the technique of act, never actually witnessing the paranormal. Yeah. Never actually see anything paranormal occur. We see the aftermath where there's like inexplicable slime on Josh's gear kind of marking him. We hear Josh screaming in the woods, even though we've seen that his tongue and teeth are ripped out. We uh, see rock piles emerge outside their tent, but with no context. So these frightening things were happening, but they're set against what appears to be at least largely like a desperate documentation of people being lost. So it does kind of blur the lines as far as like, it is in equal parts a horror movie that is about the Blair Witch and a horror movie about getting desperately lost, which I think translates really well in that regard especially because we don't see anything, which will tie into the last little note that I have also about the sound in the end. Um, 
One other thing, though, really quickly, is that the literal quality of the film, the sense of space blurred by VHS quality or 16 millimeter, especially as concerns darkness, uh, gives the woods this kind of surreal, inescapable quality that feels both endless and, as Tori, as you said, claustrophobic mm -hmm. at the same time, which I think is That's a to the choices that they made in terms of what gear they were using to film this movie and how it would be transferred. Um, mm -hmm. Because I've seen it, uh, today I rented it, so I get a high-def quality version. I also have it on VHS. I prefer the VHS, but uh, either way, it, it's got this tremendous sense of like darkness beyond space, that there is not space, there is just darkness, which makes the film so menacing in such a cool way. And then finally, wrapping things up, uh, unless anyone else has anything else really urgent to add, I did want to talk very briefly about that ending sequence, Sam, the use of sound. Um, I think the genius of that last sequence, and please, if you haven't seen this movie, you should have turned it off a while ago and just experienced it. But if, if you're listening thus far, turn it off right now and go watch it because this is the end of the movie. The genius of, of sound as, as kind of a, a, an illustration of tension because the difference is that Mike's camera, um, when they go into the house, is the color camcorder and it has sound. By contrast, uh, Heather's 16 millimeter doesn't have sound. Yeah. So as such, when Mike darts down into the basement following what he assumes to be Josh's cries, uh, Heather's screams become more and more distant. And then when Mike reaches the basement and drops the camera, we hear the audio from his camera as Heather still screaming makes her way down toward what we know will be her doom. Mm. Okay. And it also means that Mike standing in the corner at the end is part of the Flair Witch lore that um, the witch or Rustin Parr embodying Rustin Parr as the witch um, would, would bring the kids into the woods as pairs. One would stand in the corner while he killed one and then he would go for the one in the corner. Um, but when Mike is standing in the corner, he's the one that drops the camera with the sound. So that means that in the end, when he's standing in the corner, as if instructed by the witch, he's been instructed to do so silently as if entranced by something silent that we never see. Hmm. Which, Ugh. even just thinking about this, makes my hair stand on end. It's such yeah. a brilliant use of sound and such a brilliant definition of who has what camera and why the sound creates a sense of suspense because Mike's camera is down there after we know he's been, something's happened to him and we just hear heather getting closer and closer via her screams and her footage in a way that we don't know what's going to happen but we know it's going to be horrifying or tragic and then the movie just ends which is why wow. it chills me to my core every time i love that ending so much wow okay i take it back I, that's not <laughs> now I take it back. <laughs> it's actually i think one of the more effective things i've seen as far as like acuity and attention to detail as a found footage movie ever that's um, so subtle it's yeah. very subtle but and it takes rewatching. like for the longest time i was so afraid of that ending and i didn't understand why but it is not only a frightening ending but planning it that way uh cinematically as far as use of sound as pacing and space makes it uh, like kind of hair raising thing that it becomes which is uh in large part uh, among all the other things we discussed, why I adore this movie. Again, uh, my second favorite horror film, probably in my top 20 films of all time. And I was so glad to share it with you guys. Uh, does anybody else have any last final notes on Blair Witch before we kind of wrap out this episode? Those kid handprints and blood. 
in the house. Like that house is so well designed to just mm-hmm. be like the scariest house in like deep miles into the woods. Um, like the one element of like real production design was like, just, I want to like explore that house and see what's up with it. <laughs> um, um, it's also just like crazy that this like, yeah, like this movie like really did span all of these like found footage horror movies, which like many of which are like pretty bad. And a lot of like, like Sam, you brought up like kind of the issues of like, you know, who's holding the camera and stuff. It's like, oh, most of them, it's like, you do have to have this suspension of disbelief where it's like, okay, no normal person would be holding a camera still at this point, but like, we're just going to go with it because that's what we need to do for this movie. Um, but like, like shockingly found footage, like still does scare me when people do do it right. Um, like, you know, I think the paranormal activity movie like did get to me a lot too. Um, also, I don't know if any of you guys have seen Creep um but yeah that's a pretty good one really effectively uses it especially when you watch it and realize that like he's directing it even though like he's like not actually filming it which is like interesting but like yeah like when when people know what they're doing with found footage and why it's really being utilized like it's such a great horror technique and like we i mean we all really have like blair witch to thank for that yeah, this movie is just like super impressive. Even what's it like twenty one years later, still super impressive. Yeah, well, don't watch the sequels. <laughs> well, um, but do watch the Scooby Doo Project. Mm-hmm. Maybe that'll be our teaser before we release this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but but like you guys, at least please watch it and like <laughs> let I'll me. I'll watch it. There's a quote from the Blair thumb, I think, of all the time, and it makes no actual sense, but the line is, deers don't have dorsal fins, and I think about it constantly. (laughs) Oh my god, that reminds me of Ace Ventura, when he's like, do you have a dorsal fin? (laughs) Man, the 90s and dorsal fins, why? So many dorsal fins. (laughs) But I guess guess that wraps it up for uh, our spooky megasode, right? Yeah. Yeah, so of course Christine is uh, haunting the woods elsewhere. She is uh, she is on a project working on uh, working on capturing some sound in the woods. So very apropos to what we've just been discussing. Perfect. She's just hiding somewhere, and she's going to pop out and scare all of us. Um, Well, yeah, I mean. If you've listened so far and have not seen these movies, please check them out. Uh, get at us on social media, butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us some of your favorite spooky movies. Um, hopefully we'll have some um, extra episodes coming to you guys as well. Um, I want to plug uh, some of the Cinema 76 writing I've been doing. Uh, it's Halloween's time, so I've been writing a ton of stuff. Um, my Pizza Review... Uh, the best horror films of 2020, uh, my witch project, and then also uh, this coming week I'll have my top 15 slasher films, um, underrated slasher films, I should say. Um, and then also I just want to give a shout out, I'm taking a class Thursday uh, through the Miskatonic uh Film Institute. Um, our friend Lauren took a class there on indigenous horror, and I'm taking one on queer horror this week. Um, but they offer tons of free on or not free. They offer tons of online classes that are very cheap. Like my class is like ten dollars, so you can do just like log in with Zoom and stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, anything else we want to plug or or talk about before we 
leave? Cool. Real quickly, uh, Witch Path Podcast is uh, Ooh, yeah. a very, uh, very seasonally apropos pick uh, as far as podcasts go, but also just a very good podcast. Um, that one uh, definitely worth checking out. And um, also a novel idea, uh, an independent bookstore in Philadelphia. Um, a really great store run by some wonderful people who have um, a, a large catalog of uh, their available materials online. So if you're the kind of person that, uh, you know, would like to uh, be considerate of social distancing and lockdown quarantines kind of materials, uh, then, hey, maybe instead of paying, uh, you know, like a dollar to have someone risk their life and deliver you an Amazon package, order it from a novel idea because it's coming from people who really know and love books and want to get them to you safely. So uh, that's one to definitely check out. We definitely get you books safely, for sure. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason to shop at Amazon for books. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, that too. Just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, we'll see you guys for the next episode. Ooh. <laughs> Great spooky effect.